Welcome to the Nurse Classroom. This is the place where we as nurse educators work to create a more engaging and exciting classroom experience for nurses and nursing students. So no matter where or what you're teaching, we want to give you the tools to create a different type of learning atmosphere for nurses and nursing students alike. So come on in, grab a seat, and let's build something different. Hey everybody, what's going on? Welcome to the Nurse Classroom. This is the first ever episode, the inaugural episode of the Nurse Classroom Podcast. I am your host. My name is Chance. I am a registered nurse and I am a nurse educator, but more importantly, I am here to be your ally and your support and your resource. Because this is the first episode, what I wanted to do is I wanted to take a few minutes to talk about what the Nurse Classroom is, uh, how it can help you, and hopefully get you started out on the right foot to getting your classrooms to be even more engaging, more uh, enlightening, more responsive with all of your uh, students or maybe your trainees. Um, But really, the Nurse Classroom, it's really a podcast and a website for nurse educators who want to improve or even design their classrooms to be more engaging. Um, The other idea is that I wanted it to be a resource for answering questions about training or building classes. I do, uh, I train thousands of people a year. And because I train so many people, one of the jobs that I have is developing curriculum that is like meaningful and innovative and overall has a really good engagement factor. I'm always trying to push the envelope when it comes to creating a classroom that's really fun and inviting and engaging and where people learn things. And because of that, what I wanted to do was share my knowledge with you guys and, uh, give you guys the opportunity to reach out and ask questions and try to figure out ways to make uh, the classroom a more awesome place to learn. And really, the other big question that comes to mind is, who is the nurse classroom for? It's not really for students, but who it is for are these people. If you are a professor, if you're a trainer like in a hospital, are you a hospital educator? Are you a clinical instructor? Uh, You could even be a project manager that's working on a project related to nursing practice in the hospital setting. And this could give you some tips or tricks or resources to really honing in on that training component to try to figure out exactly what you need. Um, You might be a nurse interested in nurse education, or maybe you're a master's student who's in a nursing education program or even a leadership program, and that would allow you to uh, create a better training type environment. The other thing that comes to mind is why I actually started the Nurse Classroom Podcast. And... I did it for several reasons. Um, The first was that I constantly find myself developing new fun ways and I wanna share these ideas with people. And uh, I see a lot of posts in like the professional nurse educators groups on like Facebook and other social media and they're trying to figure out ways. They're like, ooh, could I do like a PowerPoint or a poster board or I even have an interview uh, what would be more exciting to, uh, you know, uh, an organization that you're interviewing with if you came up with some off the wall, crazy, uh, super fun, uh, entertaining topic or, or, or even method into teaching some of this new material or challenging material that would just win you some extra points. And so really my main objective is to really give you guys uh, opportunities to uh, to talk about um, some of the things that you're even doing. One of the most beneficial things that I that I find whenever I'm developing curriculum is trying to uh, talking through the process. I often do this with my, uh, you know, a couple of the nurses I work with. Well, what do you think if I did this? And literally it's about whiteboarding and just going through all of the processes to try to figure out what is most meaningful to your audience. 
And so there, those are a few of the reasons that I really wanted to start this podcast and start this website. Uh, the other one was this, there are a lack of curriculum development resources out there, especially for nurse educators. Uh, in my previous role, one of the jobs that I had was going out and developing and finding new innovative ways to uh, teach different types of material. And one of the things I ended up doing was I tried to reach out to several different uh, curriculum developers and designers and no one ever responded. I was so frustrated because I just felt like I was painted into this corner and all I wanted to do was really improve the product that we had. And I just didn't have those opportunities. So that was the other reason I wanted to do this. I want to be a resource for people who, uh, you know, who are early in their academic uh, teaching careers. Uh, they have, you know, a lot of nurses get put into nurse educator roles because they're really, they're really good teachers, but they need some framework or they need some help or some guidance. And that's really what I want to do with this podcast. And because this is the first episode, what I wanted to do was I wanted to start this episode out right. And we're going to start with the five basic elements of curriculum design. Really what this is going to do is it's going to give you a nice, simple framework to figure out how I go about organizing the components that I need for my class. And the first one we're going to talk about is audience first. And what that what I mean by that is you really need to identify who your audience is so that you can actually uh, train them on the materials they need. I was recently talking to a coworker and we were trying to figure out how we fix a problem. And that problem is that, you know, multiple different disciplines needed similar training, but they didn't necessarily need all of the same training. And one of the biggest struggles that we tried to figure out is who the audience is. And we oftentimes can't get there uh, unless we really try to identify the problem and really try to figure this out. In many cases, especially in the academic setting, it's going to be simple. They're going to be nursing students. But part of that, too, is even if you are an educator, one of the things you need to keep in mind is, are these first-year nursing students? Are these last-semester nursing students? Are they about to go into their capstone? That kind of gives you a frame of reference. So the way that you begin to frame your content really changes the trajectory of this design element because sometimes you have to have more more tricks up your sleeve do you need some additional physical resources do i need to try to uh, develop different types of engaging activities for these particular learners so really try to identify who that audience is first as an example i literally just got done teaching the new nurse residency at our organization and one of the things that I realized was that we were teaching elements of documentation. And one of the things that they ran into was that they couldn't take the, sim the simplest of tasks, such as doing a head-to-toe assessment on a mannequin and then being able to transfer that knowledge and that information into, uh, or their findings, I should say, into the actual electronic health record. And that's a real big problem. So... I have to understand as the instructor and as the person who's developing that curriculum that I need to go and find out who my audience is first so that I can give them some context. Like for these guys, they really needed the context to understand. I was even teaching another class with some, uh, some PCA, some patient care assistance, some techs. And one of the things that I did was I just happened to get into the habit of saying things like pericare and just the, the normal semantics nomenclature that we use as bedside nurses. Well, the 
main problem that I failed to recognize was that these techs were in a training program and at that point had not ever been instructed on what pericare meant. And so when I said pericare, it literally was perineal care, but they totally missed it because they just had not been taught what pericare meant. And so we have to always, always, always consider who our audience is. It can be a whole group of nurses. Uh, you know, do they have experience in these particular areas? Are these people transitioning from one role to another? Uh, what phase of their nursing program are they in? So the first rule of creating a well-organized classroom is finding out who that audience is. Now, let's move on to the second thing that we want to talk about, and that's learning objectives. Now, there's a lot of information on the internet about learning objectives and learning outcomes. And what I want to do here is kind of frame this in your mind so that you can, as you start to write out your lesson plan or build out your curriculum, that you have a good understanding of the differences between some of these words and some of these phrases and how you should apply them to the construction of your class. When I say learning objective, I am literally talking about what the course offers to the end user or the student. And when you start to write down and write out your curriculum development plan or your instructional design plan, start with these five things, write out who your audience is, and then define your learning objective. The learning objective literally describes what the course offers that person. And really you should identify maybe one or two learning objectives, at least one in the beginning. Try to find that one big thing that the course offers. So really state what the intent of the course is. It should be like that North Star that you really always refer back to. And so as you develop your content or you go out and build all of your questions or your tests or any of your uh, extra materials or your activities, do they reinforce that learning objective? Can it get them to, uh, to really receive what the, the course is really providing? So maybe a real world example of this would be, let's say you wanted to start this brand new restaurant or maybe you're a really good cook and you wanna share that with people, you have to figure out what kind of dine-in service you're going to have. Is this going to be a sit-down establishment where somebody comes in or is it gonna be a drive-through? Is it gonna be a combination of both? That is really what the learning objective is doing here. What does the course offer the end student? And so really you should start with something with like the example of the purpose of this course is X. And when you do that, if you start to develop out your content and you start to be like, well, should I include this or not? Then what you can do is look back at your North Star here in that learning objective and be like, you know what? That really, while it's nice to have, it's not an absolute fundamental piece of whatever this content or this courses. And because of that, I don't think I should include that. Am I going to create more confusion? Because the purpose of de defining the learning objective is to help make all of your information and your content succinct and you want it to flow well and you want everything to tie together like a really big concept map. So really think about that when you're starting to develop your, your curriculum as a learning objective. The learning objective is focused on what the course offers the end user. Now, the next thing we want to talk about are user or student-based outcomes. I call these UBOs or SBOs. But what the intent here is, is this is what the trainee or the student should be able to do at the end of the course. This is their personalized experience. And 
there are some there's a lot of information out there this is can sometimes be referred to as like a learning a learning outcome uh, but really it's what can the student or the trainee do at the end of the course that you offer the way you need to build out your student-based outcomes or your user-based outcomes is you need to to configure them this way because they actually have to do something during the course they should be able to do them at the end what you want to do is use bloom's taxonomy and use that action word, that verb, to really be able to uh, to define what they should be able to do. You should lean really heavily into Bloom's taxonomy and, the, and then define what those verbs are, those action words that the student should be able to do. At the end of this course, the, should, the student should be able to create a care plan based blah, 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 blah. They should be able to do something. The other part that's really important about the user-based outcomes, the student-based outcomes, is that they should be smart. Now remember that smart is just that mnemonic that says this goal, this user-based outcome should be specific, it should be measurable, it should be attainable, it should be relevant, and it should be time-based. And when you add all these components together, that they have blooms, that they're uh, they're stating what the, the trainee or the student should be able to do at the end of the course, that they have smart goals, as you develop them, you can look back at that learning objective and say, is this relevant to the learning objective? Does the user-based uh, outcome or the student-based outcome, does that match up with the learning objective? And if they don't, then you can stop. You can go back to reframing it before. This is even before we've gotten to the content development. But what we've done now is we've defined what the student should be able to do. So these two principles, both the learning objective and the, the student-based outcomes or the user-based outcomes, uh, depending on your audience, that, that will help to drive really precise content creation. So that leads me to my next one, which is content. So now that you've identified the actual audience, you really should be able to go into that content, that content building to make it as relevant as possible to your audience. Now, what you should be doing is building your content in a variety of ways. And what I mean is this is you should have a multitude of ways to deliver the content in the same manner. As long as you build a really good foundation in terms of what kind of content, the actual content itself, the information, the tangible information that's going to be transferred from you to that to that end user or student, as long as you have a really good understanding of what that content is, you can just start to create different tools that you can put in your toolbox. Are they different types of games? Are they different types of activities? And because you've developed your user-based outcomes, your student-based outcomes, and these learning objectives, like it becomes easier for you to say, okay, is this content relative? And if, as long as it's relative and as long as it fits the schema, then you can add it to your uh, to your toolbox. I use a variety of tips and, and tools. Like I'll actually deliver content differently uh, depending on my audience. So I use a whiteboard a ton. I love to draw on the whiteboard. I love to draw pictures. I love to write things out. I love to point in arrows because it, it forces people's eyes to follow that content and they can't just sit and not pay attention because I will definitely know. And so as you start to do this, you will be able to create really, really good tools. And in another podcast, we'll go, we'll talk about how you can build different types of tools. But one of the other things that you need to remember is that a lot of users are multimodal learners. So a lot of them are lean heavily into that kinesthetic or visual space. So if one of the things that you are thinking about doing is creating a 
a guidebook, that could be problematic for a lot of end users because those guidebooks are so heavy on text. Unless it's a big picture book, you may run into a lot of problems, especially if you're you're leaning into that that text a lot. Don't make the same mistake that I did, which was to create a guidebook to replace uh, some of the teaching and learning opportunities. For providers that we train, we created this self-paced guidebook, which was fine, but the problem was there was so much text. And when we redid the class and we changed the way that we were actually teaching, we found that there were much higher levels of engagement with many, many, many different providers and a lot of them loved it. In fact, being able to articulate some of the more important points was done because they actually had a dual screen, they actually saw what I was doing and they could follow along. The guidebook just became reference and I, I've kind of since abandoned that, that theory that guidebooks serve as a really good method of training. I think it serves as a good resource for reference if they need it later on, but it shouldn't be the the uh, the, the crux of what your your training should be. The exercise of creating the guidebook I think is really good because that makes you a content expert. But I don't believe that it should replace any sort of uh, any sort of like teaching methodologies. It should be part and parcel of it. But I do not think it anyway. It's it's I think the average is about six to eight percent of people are primarily reading learners. I know that at one point we did a study uh, or a survey, I should say, where we we polled lots of different reading uh, or learning types. And we found that reading was actually very, very low. Most of them were kinesthetic uh, or auditory or visual auditory and visual learners. So a lot of them were, were trimodal. So just keep those things in mind as you start to build out that content. Now, remember also that content curation, this is a transference of the of the knowledge phase. It's going to ebb and flow a lot, and you should practice lots and lots and lots of fluidity when you actually go through the content portion of the class. And sometimes you got to stop, you got to back up, because keep in mind, one of the challenges, especially with lots of different end users, and especially in really large metropolitan organizations uh, like the one I work at, there is a lot of diversity with people and their experience and uh, their healthcare literacy, computer literacy, even uh, language barriers. Some of these are some of the things that we have to keep in mind. So you have to be able to kind of shift a little bit if you have to and not just always deliver. I'm a big believer that uh, that content and curriculum design and development is a is a bottom up approach. There are two real methods, and I know that at some point I'll talk about this. Essentially, there is a top-down approach to creating classes and training, and then there's also a bottom-up approach. Top-down approach is I'm just going to deliver the information, hold on tight, and I'm going to make sure that we get through a lot of it. This is very reminiscent of a lot of nursing programs. I know that uh, during my during my experience in nursing school, uh, it was a lot of here's all the information you kind of have to learn it. Uh, the the school that I went to was uh, was somewhat of a flipped classroom, but the majority of the information was here's all the information we're just going to tell you. Very li- very few times was it hey help me understand where you're at, which is the bottom up approach. When you survey your audience or you survey your end users and find out what their preferred learning styles are. It makes the the education process so much easier because now you don't have to try to 
skirt around uh you know computer issues computer literacy issues you don't have to skirt around healthcare literacy issues you don't have to skirt around the idea that maybe there is a language barrier the more information that you know about your audience the easier it is to dial into the things that make them tick which is why i'm a huge fan of the bottom-up approach rather than the top-down approach so when you're beginning to get into the curriculum design Try to keep these things in mind. How do I always think about the audience first? Because that, that was your first step in developing any of your classroom or training. So you always want to be able to have all of the tools in your toolbox so that your, your class does ebb and flow. It does have that fluidity so that you can, if you get a curveball, uh, you know, I've even had classes where things just stop working. And uh, because we teach a software, we have to be able to have our all of our computers and stuff working and that becomes a problem and so when stuff just doesn't work i have to figure out a different way there was an entire class where my screen didn't present but luckily i had screen share and i felt like i was flying blindly but i had to build in a lot of hey do you guys see what i did there uh you know i'm gonna come around and i'm gonna check and see your work those kind of things being able to go back and just making sure that everybody's following along so always 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 be fluid but be structured because the content you know that content you've gone through the process of building it you are the knowledge expert and many times you're that what they call the subject matter expert or the SME as you go through that content that content building curation structure just keep those things in mind so always kind of look back at the same time too because we want to be able to make sure that the content that you're making is is focusing on those student-based outcomes are they making sure that they align with your learning objective and do they fit your audience because as you the further away you get from the first step you have to be able to make sure that all of these things look back in a really really meaningful way and then finally the last element of a good curriculum design is testing and i don't just mean a final test as a matter of fact in my classes i use three or four different tests, a variety of them. So always keep in the back of your mind that you will have to have testing incorporated from the very first moment that people walk in the room to the moment they walk out. One of the things that I'm a huge fan and advocate for is the use of pre-assessments or pre-tests. Uh, I think that they provide a ton of value, especially in identifying gaps. Um, if you are developing a training inside an organization or at a hospital and you are starting to build your class or your training, try to figure out what information you can grab from those users at the very beginning. I use the pre-assessment in two ways. The first way that I use it is uh, to find out where those gaps are. So the end users or the new nurses, they get this pre-assessment and it tells me what they can do. The other thing that it does is it gives me a reference point because of the diversity of nursing school and all of the information uh, that's out there in terms of the, the topics that I tend to teach. Uh, it, it's a it's a good idea to have some single point of reference because now you can actually refer back as people progress through their learning and they gather and require more information. You can use that as a reference point to go back and say, oh, wait, did they really understand this now? Are they really just starting to build on those those uh, the principles of Bloom's taxonomy where you know, it's first like recall and then it's understand and then it's, uh, you know, and then it, we go 
into like the analyze phase and then we go into the evaluate and we start to create things like being able to to do those and can they apply them progressively is really, really critical uh, to their success and their knowledge. Now, I am a big fan of things like summative objective assessments and summative performance assessments. I actually think they go hand in hand, especially uh, when you're training roles like nurses because they have a tendency to execute a particular skill and you want to be able to reference that in some sort of objective way. So a hybrid model, I'm a huge fan of. I think they work really well. Um, but one of the things at, at the end, you you probably need some sort of pinnacle of an assessment. So in the like ex, as an example, in the nurse residency that I just taught, I act, they got three different tests. They got one as a pre-assessment. I actually used the the pre-assessment model to have, have them follow along at the end of the day. So I then taught them essentially what was on the pre-assessment because that was the content. The content was built, or the, the pre-assessment I should say, was built around all of the content that I had curated. So at the end, they got a final, final, like a mastery uh, comprehensive assessment. And I think that those play into play into the structure of curriculum design really well, but just keep those things in mind as you go along the way. You may have to figure out how you're going to test people throughout the way, um, or along the way, I should say. Providing those formative assessments, those quizzes or those quick check-ins, I think are very valuable, but you need to try to find a way to make them extremely meaningful. I can sometimes personally fall into that habit of, does anybody have any questions? Do you understand? Um, I think that that's an okay way to do it. Uh, you know, I have to remind myself sometimes uh, that I need to figure out ways to ask the right question because um, I've actually built in knowledge checks for a lot of, for the residencies because they're far more structured. But if I'm teaching, you know, a, in a, a group of experienced nurses, I may just say, do you have any questions? And if they don't have any questions and I move on. And as an educator, I think that I may be doing them a disservice, admittedly. And so one of the things that we need to do is make sure that we are providing meaningful checks along the way just to make sure that you are keeping tabs on them. And like I did with that most recent group, using that assessment, that pre-assessment model and being able to go in and say, okay, well, did they actually do the stuff that they were supposed to? That was a way for me to check in along the way. Uh, I think that there are lots of innovative ways to make that happen, but really you should dial it back into that, that audience first approach of finding who my audience is, how do I connect with them, and how do I make sure that I'm truly understanding if there are current gaps along the way. The last thing that you should also do is you should provide a survey to that class when they're done. We use a modified NPS, a net promoter score. And the reason we do that is because it provides us specific feedback about what the trainer did that helped them. A traditional NPS is going to ask, how likely were you to refer some, this product or service to somebody else? And I think that that's an okay method. I've seen it fall short though, because when if I have one group of people who are experienced in as nurses using this type of software, but I have somebody who has never used it, but they are an experienced nurse, they're gonna get very, very different results. And that's truly not reflective of the type of training that I am actually giving. So what we do is we use a modified one where we actually use the net promoter calculation to say on a scale of one to 10, um, did the trainer do this thing? And this is kind of where you can create your own um, 
your own user-based outcomes for yourself where you say, I should be able to teach this thing. I should be able to execute this thing. And then you get feedback from those end users and they're gonna be able to tell you exactly what uh, you know your areas of strength and strengths and your areas of weakness. One of the things that we actually have built into that survey is that if somebody scores less than a nine, so nine or 10, um, in a net promoter score are what they call promoters. And that says that I did a really good job. Anything less than an eight actually takes them to an area where they put in where that deficiency was. You will have to grow a little bit of, of thick skin when you start to get into this thing and, and, and try to figure out, you know, it, it's hard, especially, and I know this, that when you put a lot of time and effort and, and work into your project or your training class or, or your curriculum development, that it's hard to not be to take offense sometimes and really what you need to do is exercise that that intellectual humility and say you know what i could have been wrong about this one thing or i could do it better because the constant you know goal is always to make your class a better learning experience and you can't do that if you don't know what you don't know and so when you go and make these surveys give yourself the opportunity to learn from your audience to learn about the process of developing a training class, and you're going to do a lot of good things and have a lot of success with your end users because you are constantly building and building and building. As a matter of fact, I just got some feedback from a residency that I did a couple of months back over the summer, and I was actually finding out that they were instructing and teaching the experienced nurses on the floor. And I think that says a lot about the efforts that they made as individual nurses in learning the material and then applying it into practice because they were able to improve their efficiency. And as a matter of fact, I also got word from the director of the program that these nurse residents, none of them required extension, which was fantastic. Uh, and that's something that has never happened. And so that actually keeps us going towards that magnet status uh, that we're trying to achieve for our organization. And because of these things, like that's why that feedback is so important. Staying in touch with your program directors, staying in touch with your managers, staying in touch with you know the deans if you're in an academic setting, trying to find out ways that you get that feedback. Don't take it personally, take it for what it is at, at surface value and try to find ways because if, you th if you're getting information about, hey, well, this group of students really didn't like X, Y, or Z, and it is a standard, then maybe we need to go back and figure out, is there a better way to deliver X, Y, and Z, or is X, Y, and Z not relevant, and we need to, as a group of educators uh, in that academic setting, is that is that really necessary? How important is it to a practice? How important is, is it to their, to their education? So just kind of keep those things in mind. So just to recap what we've talked about, we have audience first. We want to keep that audience in mind. We always want to think about them. You want to create your learning objective. So what does the course offer those end users? What, uh, what are the student-based outcomes? So I need something that's smart. I can uh, state that it's what the student should be able to do at the very end. And it has some, so it's got some sort of tie into blooms and that allows you to build your content more uh, efficiently and more concisely for those users. And then don't forget to test, being able to test and survey and collect data is going to help reinforce your content creation and it's gonna help you design a much better classroom.
Thank you guys for listening to the Nurse Classroom Podcast. I'm Chance. I'm your host. If you thought this podcast was helpful in helping you create a better classroom, go on over to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, anywhere you listen to this podcast, leave a rating and a review. It helps me out. And I'll see you guys next time in the Nurse Classroom.